Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. On today's episode, I am joined by the graphic designer and educator, Nicole Killian. Nicole is currently the co-director of the Design Visual Communications MFA at Virginia Commonwealth University, where they are also an assistant professor in the graphic design department. Nicole's work uses graphic design, video, publishing, objects, and installations to investigate how structures of the internet, mobile messaging, and shared online platforms affect contemporary interaction and shape cultural identity from a queer perspective. They recently guest edited a series for the Walker Art Center called How Will We Queer Design Education Without Compromise? We begin this conversation, however, with their early education. Nicole studied graphic design at the Rochester Institute of Technology, where they did a study abroad at the Bauhaus, making them, I think, my first guest to actually have studied at the Bauhaus. So we talk about that. We talk about that experience and how that uh, kind of shaped their early education, as well as their time studying at Cranbrook. We also, of course, talk about these ideas of queering design education and what that actually looks like in practice. If you like the show, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for superfans. They give you access to all sorts of bonus content like a monthly newsletter, early episode transcripts, exclusive interviews, and more, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like scratching the surface, if you would like to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to help support the show. Thanks for listening. And here's my conversation with Nicole Killian. I'd actually like to begin talking a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into all of this. And I'm very curious about the trajectory of of your career. You grew up in Rochester, right? And then you went to RIT for undergrad? Um, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, actually. okay. Yeah. Okay. I get I get all of upstate New York. It's just one. I lived in the city for a while, so everything else is just New York. I feel like anyone who's who's never left or like who's lived in New York City thinks everything upstate is is like Hudson, but um yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. know more than that. I know more than that. No, I know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm joking. But yeah, uh, Buffalo is about an hour away from Rochester. Can you talk about what you were interested in at the time when you were going to RIT? What was your sort of understanding of graphic design or what? why, why did you start to kind of go in that direction? I mean, I think that <laughs> it's not very different from a lot of people that went to high school in the 90s, but... Uh, I really liked being on the internet and I liked hmm. magazines and album covers. And okay. um, my, I would say I didn't really understand much of what graphic design was, but I knew that I liked art and I liked hmm. sitting at a computer, which mm -hmm. maybe I, maybe I would have like told my high school self to think about that deeper, but um, yeah, that was, <laughs> I mean, that was sort of, I wanted to go to school for art, uh, and I was a first generation college goer. And so I think graphic design seemed really uh, like my parents could could get behind that and be excited for me um, when I said, I think this is what I'm going to do. This is a weird question. I'm sorry. But <laughs> what, what was what what kind of work were you doing in school? What were the projects like? Was it aligning uh -huh. with your expectations? Did it did it meet what you wanted of as being like an art kid who liked being on the computer? I had no expectations. I really I mean, I went to, I went to Catholic school and um, my the way like my my art education uh, wasn't 
that great. Um, you know, and so when I got to school, I was like pretty intimidated because I remember there were kids who had already used a, like used a Mac. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was like, oh no, this is, this is not going to go well for me. I think even when I had applied to schools, some programs told me I was going to have to go into remedial drawing <laughs> classes or else I was not going to be a good graphic designer, which is oh, wild. Wow. Um, so I had no expectations and it was really great. I loved art foundations. I loved sort of taking things that, you know, weren't directly connected to what I was going to be studying in graphic design. I would say... You know, at RIT, it, the American modernism really cast a strong glow over every everything. And um, sort of looking at that curriculum even now, it seems like it does. Uh, I think we really stopped at April Griman when it came to contemporary conversations, uh. you know. Um, and we didn't really learn much about postmodernism. Um, oh, interesting. But I connected with faculty who let me explore their prompts in different ways. Um, they were the type of faculty who talked about graphic design without talking about graphic design, where <laughs> we would just watch a shit ton of music videos in class or uh, like pour over a stack of books or go to the dollar theater after class. And that felt like the education. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, they, they, the teachers that I gravitated towards, you know, if we were doing sort of like a sequential photo project, they let me not mount it on phone core. They let me put the, the photos in a box with a bunch of mm -hmm. trinkets. And so it became this silly exper experiential thing. Um, and I'm really grateful for, for those people. Heinz Klinken, Lori Freer, Ryan Clifford. Um, they were people who really, I think, yeah, supported supported a student's want for maybe more than what was being provided. And that's kind of why I was asking, and I don't, they do have that sort of modernist brand, <laughs> you know, that's kind of, that's kind of what they're known for. You know, Elliot Earls also went there. I do know that. Yeah. Which is also, I think I asked him about this question too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think was something that we initially connected on when I went to grad school. But yeah, I mean, I think that my, um, I took a really amazing class with Roger Remington that was called like mm -hmm. women pioneers in design. And um, we would like get on the phone with, with, with people. He would just sort of call, call his friends and we would talk to them. Um, and the arc and the archives were incredible. And something that I really, that Roger did that I think was really brilliant. There were no tests and I think everything else was really sort of focused around, you know, what are you remembering? And, mm -hmm. you know, Everyone has to take a test to, to make sure you know design history. But he really, we'd read stuff, we'd experience the archives he'd bring in, and then we'd talk about them and write reflective pieces. And um, I thought that was really refreshing given sort of what else was going on at RIT at the time. It's interesting that you were kind of challenging the prompts too at, at, at that time and you know, I think about my own undergraduate experience, which was also a very kind of modernist focused uh, education and, and sort of, you know, those were the aesthetics that everything was judged against. And I just totally bought into it. 
you know, I loved, I tell, yeah, tell me how to set up a grid and how to follow these rules and I will do it. You know, I did, it came later for me to think about how to challenge those things. And so why, where do you think that came from for you that you were kind of immediately saying, well, why does it have to be on foam core? Why can't it be in a box with trinkets? Um, I don't, I actually don't know. I don't think I was really thinking deeply about it. I just knew that I wanted to try something. And I think also uh, Graham Carson, who was my 3D foundations teacher, I just like shouting out people that yeah, go for are, go you know, for are, are important because I think, you know, Graham was a, Graham is a jeweler and taught 3D foundations. But I think like also gravitating towards people who weren't in graphic design, mm. I think really allowed me to just think about object making and form and like communication in, in these other, in maybe these other ways. And that maybe that was where that questioning came from. But um, right. I don't know. I think I just, I, I was in school 2000 to 2004 and I feel like I was mm. just really curious about stuff I was seeing in books or the things I was being inspired by in films and so I thought well why why not try it a different way like if we're here and we're you know we're supposed to be trying things out um like why not do that which yeah there was like no other there was no other sort of like deep question yeah. I was having you then went to the Bauhaus. How did that happen? And why Why did that happen? That This is you the know, most curious part of your background that I'm trying to figure out. Well, you know, it's the reason I went to RIT is that they had a study abroad. Uh-huh. Um, and the only one they had was, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Wow, of course. Um, I don't, I went to an open house. I saw a senior uh a senior talk about their experience and that that seemed really life-changing for them and I don't know why but I felt like I I was like whoa that I want to do that Mm. um and so I yeah I was minoring in Italian at RIT and then found out I was going to go to Germany and decided to audit a, a German class um I was like oh shit I'm going to go to Germany in in the next semester. Um, So yeah, that was the only option. And I just wanted to have that experience. And so the trade-off was like, I either graduate with my friends in Rochester or or I get into this study abroad. And so it was me, an industrial design student, uh, one other graphic designer and a new media student. And the four of us went over. Our classes were all in German. and you know kind students afterwards would help us translate what happened in <laughs> class um and it was an it was in, it was incredible it was a totally hum, like humbling experience to like have to figure things out in a different way um and not have the privilege of just yeah. you know, knowing what's going on and yeah. and like thinking about that deeply as a as a designer I have two questions that are kind of related. Yeah. One is just tell me about tell me more about that experience. <laughs> tell me tell me yeah. what it was like to be at the Bauhaus. But I'm also curious, were you how much were you aware of sort of the the mytho, the mythos about the Bauhaus and, oh. and 
the legacy and and the the sort of importance that designers put on this institution were you aware oh, of that going in yes i mean okay. i was and i think i teared up when i first saw oh. i mean it was oh, yeah wow. i mean like tiny nicole at 21 was totally like i can't believe i'm here you know um yeah and the German students, I mean, it was hilarious. The German students were like, whatever, like, who cares about the Bauhaus? And that was that was really great, too, because I think it really made me think about our education at RIT and why uh. were we sort of, like, obsessing over this thing that maybe, like, yes, it's important, but there's probably all these other things that I haven't learned. Right. Um, and so that was, a, that was, like, a funny thing getting there, and then the students not the German students sort of not being as sort of uh, they're not they weren't swooning over where they were going to school um, mm -hmm. for sure uh, it was great it um, when I got there I realized that my hand had been held extremely tight uh, mm. in my undergraduate education and then all of a sudden I was there I was getting prompts and you know 10 weeks later you'd show up with your project um, yeah and I remember meeting weekly with one of my professors and he said something like, slow down, like, this isn't America. I'm not checking off boxes. Uh, <laughs> and I just, um, there was a lot more autonomy. And I think that it seemed like at least the classes that I was taking, the professors really believed in the autonomy of the students. And so mm -hmm. there weren't all these sort of like, next week you need this. And the week after that, you're going to present this and you have to do this. It really was, this is the overarching idea. Um, now go explore it and we'll come back and see what you've all done. Um, and I think that that was really shocking to me. I didn't know how to slow down. Um, it was really confusing. And then sort of, you know, when I was done, I realized how grateful I was for that experience. And uh, it left me wondering how to do that again. I promise this whole conversation will not be about the Bauhaus, but somehow out of... I hilariously never get asked about it. Um, oh, great. <laughs> so, so it is sort of funny that you're like, tell me more about the Bauhaus because... I don't like I don't um I sort of forget forget that that happened. <laughs> well, I have a couple I have a couple questions that will hopefully kind of make this obsession makes a little bit more sense. I mean, somehow out of the 212 people that I've talked to, I've not talked to anyone else who has graduated from the Bauhaus. So you are the first, which is why I'm asking mm -hmm. you all of these questions. Yeah. Uh, but but the two other reasons why I'm asking is because I'm endlessly fascinated by the Bauhaus largely because I have come to learn that the Bauhaus, what I was taught about the Bauhaus when I was an undergrad, like my undergrad design history class, is mm -hmm. such a such a sort of oversimplified understanding mm -hmm. of what what they were trying to do. And it was like, you know, mm -hmm. circle, square, triangle, red, blue, yellow, you know, modernism, Van der Rohe, and all of this mm -hmm. sort of socialist, utopian, student-led you know it's very it's a very 
the origins of the Bauhaus are very radical. And all of that was completely sanitized in how I was mm-hmm. kind of taught. And I, I've tried to do this sort of like re-education of the Bauhaus. And I, I find it kind of fascinating uh, what they were trying to do and then how that shifted and you know, became what we know of the Bauhaus. And I sometimes think, sorry, I'm ranting now a bit. No, you're fine. But this like, uh, you know, these modernist ideals plus sort of foundation courses seems to be what everyone has taken away from the Bauhaus. And those are maybe the two least interesting things, you know, to kind of take from that legacy. And so I'm I'm curious about how, how you being there, how you have come to kind of see that legacy and and what what maybe we're missing or what it, what it is like now or when you were there uh you know and how that kind of evolution has taken place do you have thoughts on any of that does that even make sense do you know what i mean yeah no no it makes sense i mean i think it it's definitely a it it's definitely a different thing than what we learned in school and um it's kind of amazing i think that like current at least the students I work with don't think much about the Bauhaus. And (laughs) that's also like, I'm like, wow. Okay. Uh, Yeah. yeah, I think that something that I, I don't think until years after I was there, I sort of realized really what was going on that like does not get looked at in um, design education in the States. And I think that something that I think was really inspiring is this idea of sort of like an a holistic approach right yeah um that that explores sort of any tools materials and means possible um and so it's not necessarily like circle square triangle but really i mean i think that the uh the Bauhaus like study circle with those concentric circles that talk about like materials and approaches, um, architecture, design, textiles, like that feels so much more interdisciplinary than the way it gets talked about. (laughs) Right. right. Um, You know? And so I think even when I was there, I didn't really, I didn't see that and feel that, but I do think um, something that I felt when I was there was that, truly how like a space is built and the framework that your body walks in can have like an extreme ex- like uh connection to you or disconnection and for me it felt uh it felt really exciting to be in buildings that felt intentional um mm. as opposed to maybe other spaces like i'm not an architect but i like thinking about architecture um or frameworks and so that was something that I think and maybe that's why I got teary-eyed when I was there is that like you know you see these photos but then you go and you're like oh whoa this this was like this was a a total thought experiment right right um and it it's one thought experiment in a world of many other interesting thought experiments but the way it's taught in design education is that it's the thought experiment Right. right right um so I don't know if that gets to what you were talking. Yeah. Or... Yeah. No, that's, a, yeah, that's so, I, I think you're exactly right. And I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a jump that is maybe a big jump, but I want to use <laughs> that to talk about Cranbrook because I think, I think, <laughs> yeah. the, you know, and I know you, I'm, I'm 
purposely not trying to just go through your whole history. You 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 came back, you worked for a while, but then you went back to school and you went to Cranbrook for your MFA. Yeah. And and you know, I think of this is this is not an original thought, but Cranbrook is is sort of a very clear um uh sort of cousin maybe to the Bauhaus. Yeah. I think a lot of those ideals are in Cranbrook. And it was interesting to hear you talk about the Bauhaus building because that's something I talk I've talked to Elliot about, about just the mm-hmm. layout and the buildings on Cranbrook and how that has influenced him and and teaching. And Cranbrook is is notorious for being student led and not checking off boxes, you know, exactly what you were talking about. And I'm can you talk about sort of going to Cranbrook and the decision to go to Cranbrook as opposed to to other schools and how maybe that that Bauhaus experience shaped some of that? Yeah, I mean, definitely when I started talking about the architecture in Dessau, I was immediately like making the mm-hmm, <laughs> the mental mm-hmm. leap for myself to Cranbrook. Um Yeah, I, you know, when I was studying in Germany, I thought I was going to apply to Cranbrook at 21. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. And I, but I was going to apply to the 3D program because I thought I Mm. just studied graphic design. I should think about a different, I should think about design in a different way. And uh, I looked at the application and realized that I had no business applying for graduate school. Like I had no idea how to make (laughs) a a statement about personal intent. I was like, oh my God, I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing. Um, And so I tabled that idea. um, But I, I, Cranbrook was on my radar because my professor Heinz Klinken at RIT showed me the red book that, Mm. uh, Cataline Middenkoop and Ryan Pescatori Frisk had designed when they were there. Um, talk about an object that you you get in the mail and you covet. Like I I had never seen graphic design look like that. I think this had to have been 2002, 2003. They studied with the Macalas and um, I was like, holy shit, like I need to be there. I don't know when I can go, but like I, I would love to be there. Um, so, you know, I looked at the application, realized it, I, it was not something I could do. So, um, I went to New York and I worked for a while, mostly in the entertainment industry at MTV and then Mm -hmm. Nickelodeon, um, did like TRL news and MTV news stuff. Yeah. And then, um, did Nickelodeon, like Nickelodeon stuff. Um, and I was being really inspired by what I was doing at work and I would go home and make more work that wasn't for my job. That was sort of inspired by the entertainment industry or thinking about how design was the infrastructure through which so so many things like feed through. Um, And so I was starting to meet a lot of Cranbrook grads who were slightly older than me that had graduated around uh, 04, 05, 06. Mm-hmm. Um, and being looking up to them, being really inspired by them. And so around, two th- yeah, it was 2008, I decided I was going to apply um, and so, yeah, I, I applied, I was only going to apply to Cranbrook. Um, a friend, you know, recommended maybe I apply to a couple other schools just in case. Um, I got into 
So this another was like another design school, yeah. Okay, so, uh, so sorry to cut you off, but no. So this this was very this was not like I want to go to grad school or I feel no. like I need more. I need to go to grad school. This was I want to go to Cranbrook. There's something from Cranbrook that I need. It was it was yeah, very I, focused there. Yeah, and I got into um, I got into a school that that was much more impressive to my parents who like you know didn't didn't go to school and they, you know, they had no idea what Cranbrook was. And I remember I went to the interview at Cranbrook, saw the campus. And I remember calling my mom and saying, if I don't go get in here, I don't think I want to go to grad school. Mm. And my mom saying, well, why don't you still go to XYZ school <laughs> interview just, just because it's XYZ. And um, so I did. And it wasn't the same experience. It didn't leave me inspired or it didn't feel <laughs> aspirational at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, I got in and it was really hard to move to Michigan. Like, I think that was really hard for me to leave my community in New York. Yeah. And I think if yeah. I would have gone to the other school, I, I would have still been in proximity, mm -hmm. but it was the, it was the right choice for me. Um, I, I really wanted to go there, thought if I didn't get in, maybe I would just wait and reapply um, and keep working. But I ended up going in, I started in 2009. It's interesting that you had this sort of, you know, the way I asked you about how aware were you of the Bauhaus mythos when you went there, you had the whole Cranbrook mythos when you went there also. I did. And when I got there, I think Elliot in my interview was like, let me cut to the chase because you already know what's going on here. And I think that was, <laughs> I think that was also really good. And when, when current students or friends say they want to go to Cranbrook, I'm like, let me tell you everything challenging about it. And also really great because I think you need to know that before you apply. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because the struct, the non-structure structure is not for everyone. Um, right. But I was like, I went through this really structured curriculum in undergrad. So I feel like I don't want that experience for graduate school. How did you deal with that? It sounds like you had a little bit of that at the Bauhaus, but you were coming from New York where you were working in entertainment. And it was like, a you know, sounds a little bit more of a kind of traditional design mm -hmm. roles. What was that sort of transition like? Were you able to kind of develop a, a studio practice and kind of generate work? quickly or can you talk a little bit about that struggle um yeah it was I think there were a lot of struggles um struggles of did I make the right choice because I think mm. that when I talk about this a lot in grad school or with applicants you know like any choice you make you're going to second guess yourself that first mm. year in grad school <laughs> mm -hmm. you know you're like oh my god but that this name or this name of school or whatever like was that the right choice um so I think the first struggles were just being in a being in a place where like honestly there were no queer people mm. <laughs> that was really hard for me like coming from new york and then right. getting to cranbrook where at the time i i think maybe there were like two gay guys that i was friends with and we used to joke and call ourselves the gay alliance <laughs> um you know like that was i that was a struggle i that i think now in 2022 that's not the case there but at in 2009 it was and so there were struggles of like mm. did is my community here um and jelly you know just like getting acclimated to a place that you're not from um right. 
and I don't think making work was difficult there. Like I applied with only self-initiated work. I didn't apply with any job work. That was kind of a a choice. I I decided to only share the work that I was making like on my own time at night. Um, I think I made like a whole portfolio in six months before I applied. I remember telling my friends, I'm applying to grad school. You might not see me for six months because I'm going to just <laughs> go from work to home. Yeah. And, uh, it was when you were like renting DVDs from Netflix and I would just like got three, three, three a week. And I'd like <laughs> watch all these DVDs and, nice. and make, and make stuff. Um, so that wasn't hard. I think I was super intimidated to be there and, I've said this to other like for, to former students who've gone on to Cranbrook that like the ghosts are very present at that school. I mm. think that uh, especially for those who apply knowing other Cranbrookers or mm. sort of mm. just people who've been at that school. I think that, uh, yeah, that was really intimidating for me to be at this space in this place where I'd seen so much amazing work happen um, and wonder if I was going to be able to like live up to that or, um, and, uh, yeah, I think it was, it was really great. I lived on campus, so I would wake up at 6am, go for a run, get in the studio by 7, 7.30. And I just, we, most of us live, lived in our studios. So we were just doing our thing, then having crits on Thursdays and, um, it was really, it was a, it was a profound experience for me. I think that the writing at Cranbrook was the best thing that came out of there for me, the writing and the, and the talking. Um, mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. think anyone, I don't think anyone needs to see the work I made while I was there, but <laughs> I think that, the, I think that the writing and the talk and the talking was, uh, was, was really important. I want to, I want to come back to that for a second, but I have two other two other kind of smaller questions. And then I promise we'll move on from Cranbrook to bigger, cool. bigger questions. Um, but you said something interesting about the ghosts at Cranbrook being very real. And that's something that I think about a lot with these sort of big institutions that become mm -hmm. sort of brand names and have their star students and, and they become known for a style even. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, for better and for worse and not always by their own fault. You know, sometimes it's just how it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's the Bauhaus idea, you know, it just sort of devolves into something. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on, and you can talk about this in the context of Cranbrook, you can talk about this in the context of the Bauhaus, you could even talk about this in the context of your own institution now and in teaching. Mm -hmm. How do you sort of reconcile being in the presence of those ghosts while also realizing that you need to move beyond them. And I'm not talking about the student, I'm talking about like at an institutional level. You yeah. know, like how how does a how does an institution like Cranbrook still be Cranbrook while also not making everybody else <laughs> who goes through that program feel like they're at Cranbrook? You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the issue with that is how people write about Cranbrook. Um right, I think right. that most people stay writing about it through the lens of the McCoys and the Macalas. And even, you know, maybe up until the early 2000s. And I think that there are there there has been so there have been so many people that have gone through that school in in just like the last 15 years that I don't even think like people don't talk about them as like Cranbrook. And I 
I feel like um, <laughs> sometimes I read things about Cranbrook and I'm like, no, start talking about things that are happening there now, because I think that that sort of the myth of Cranbrook is important, but I do think that people would be surprised past the nineties, what's been happening there. Right. <laughs> and right. I think that, and I think that um, with any school there, are, there's like this sort of fanboy situation that happens. And so um, people will visit and maybe disappointed that it's like not the way it was or how they've mm-hmm. read it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I think that can happen with like a lot of other sort of like private schools. Mm-hmm. I will say, um, you know, the school that I teach at is it's it's a top ranked school, but it is a public school. And so I think that we kind of are, are a little off the hook when it comes yeah. to comes to that um, for better or worse. I think uh, explaining what we do is maybe sometimes surprising because we don't have that sort of. Um, that that name that people are like, ooh, you went to X Y Z. Um, like this right. means that you are like a hotshot. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like I think, but I think that when I talk to people about choosing a graduate school to go to, you know, there's like so many different reasons why you choose a place, but it's usually like faculty funding and facilities. But really, it's also like whatever school you go to, that is like, that becomes part of your family tree for better or worse. And so mm-hmm. I think you should look and like, is that, are those the people you want to run with in some way? Um, do you think that these are people you can lean on? Um, uh, and something that I think has been really sort of like the gift that keeps on giving with Cranbrook is that I do think that. Cranbrook grads really like it doesn't matter like where you live what year you went there um I do feel like sometimes I can I can cold email someone who maybe is like 30 years older than me or 15 years younger than me and we can have a really funny conversation about that weird experience that we all went through like being (laughs) on that campus yeah even though those experiences were drastically different the thing that is always interesting to me about Cranbrook that I don't think is discussed enough is how all the all the artists and residents there have kind of seemed to put such an emphasis on on education and pedagogy and it seems Mm -hmm. like there are this is purely anecdotal but i have never taught at an institution that does not have a cranbrook uh person on its faculty and there is Mm -hmm. there is no other institution where every place that I've gone has had somebody from that institution. Cranbrook is the only yeah. one. Um, and that's that's a half dozen institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you all are everywhere in every yes. <laughs> every kind For of design education school. program. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on why that is. Like how did you get into teaching? How what is what is in the air there that kind of you know encourages that sort of direction? I knew I wanted to teach when I was an undergrad, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then Graham, my 3D teacher was like, get an MFA, don't get it. Uh, if you want to teach at the university level, get an MFA. Cause I was thinking about like sticking around for maybe an art education master's there. Oh yeah. Um, and when I went to Cranbrook, I did not think I would teach anytime soon 
after graduation. Mm. I thought 20, 30 years from Cranbrook. Um, I think that the the interdisciplinary approach there, whether you're in ceramics, photo, sculpture, fiber, 2D or 3D, I think that that school doesn't privilege like the quote unquote fine arts over the quote unquote crafts or design. I think that there really is this support, supportive discourse on sort of like, if you can talk about form and content, then you should be able to talk about form and content regardless of where it's coming from. And I think that, you know, I've taught it at institutions where like people in other disciplines are like, I'm a painter, I can't talk about graphic design. And I think something that was really amazing about Cranbrook is that that does not happen. Um, someone, fr- someone from the metals department could talk more than your classmates in your 2D crit. Um, and you could go to fiber and do the same. And I think that that really sort of <laughs> provides a space for like mental gymnastics to happen. And like you learn you're sort of provided with new language to not t- not just talk about your own discipline, but then to bring that language from your discipline to others. Um, and so I think there's this really interesting cross-pollination of language that happens, which is why I think a lot of people end up teaching because they're able to talk to people about their work. Um, and sometimes that's like really difficult to find <laughs> yeah. in an institution. So I think that that, that is maybe what Cranbrook really prepped me for. Um, and I think, you know, in the, in, in my group, I would say like, I think there were 11 people ahead of me and nine in my class, like not a lot of us are teaching, you know, I think that there's a lot of Cranbrook people teaching, but I would say like of the cohorts, you'll find like one or two in each cohort that go on Mm -hmm. to teach. I don't think, I don't Mm -hmm. think it's like, um, the other school that I had gone into in grad, when I went to an open house, they were like, if you want to teach, don't say that in your statement. And that really turned me off because I thought, well, like, if you're choosing to go into another level of education, like, shouldn't you also like respect that of education and like want to right. uh, be generous and like pass that on? And I think that the people that taught me I'm trying to like pass on the things that they, they, they gave me to other people. Um, and so I just feel like I have mm-hmm. like a deep, there should be in educational spaces, a deep respect for educators and like <laughs> education inside and outside of the institution. Like that doesn't have to be like going on to teach in college. It could be running workshops or, you know, right. doing whatever. I first became aware of your work a couple of years ago when you were doing a lot of kind of writing and thinking about this idea of queering design education. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that and some of, you know, some of the ideas behind that. But for people who people who who have not read your writing or are unfamiliar, can you talk about when you when you talk about queering design education, what does that what does that mean to you? Yeah, you know, it came out of um, asking myself that question that uh, I ended up using for the Walker Art Center's um, soundboard platform. I don't think it's okay. So querying design isn't one thing for me. And I think that a lot of people would have different, different definitions. But I think that 
maybe five, six years into teaching, I realized that some of the ways in which I was trying to change or shake up what was happening in the classroom could be defined as like queering design. And so some of those, some of those things are, and these aren't like, this isn't rocket science, but it's like, you know, instead of solving problems, ask more questions. Like, how do we, how do we operate on the margins? How do we interrogate the margins? How do we, um, how do we acknowledge and privilege the bodies that are in a classroom that are in our space? And how do we react to each other? How do we, how do we talk about community and not audience? Mm. Um, I think those are some of the things that I saw I saw happening in the prompts or classes I was teaching. And I was like, oh, I think I could define this for myself in these ways. Um, which then like, I think allowed me to think more, more deeply about my teaching in general by kind of looking at it through that lens. In thinking through this, I'm curious how that has changed how you operate in the classroom and, and what, what changes you've made in how you act as a teacher as you've mm -hmm. started to kind of really think deeply about these ideas? Um, I think that when I started teaching uh, after grad school, so I ended up getting a visiting artist position at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. And I taught with incredible people there, Eric Brandt, Kendra Murphy, mm -hmm. Jan Jancourt, and Piotr Shahalski. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, like, I realized what I wanted to do in the classroom was, like, indirect response to how I had been taught. And so I thought about the things that brought me joy, the things that I didn't learn about that I felt really sort of like upset that like certain histories or spaces mm -hmm. or communities mm -hmm. were sort of left out of the conversation. And then, you know, I thought about like, what didn't bring me joy? And those were sort of like the simple questions that I asked myself when I started teaching. Um, and I considered every time I walked into a classroom, like a thought experiment or like an experiment that could be changed over time. And so uh, that's ideally how like I try to think about teaching and trying to be responsive to the people who are in the room. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about a syllabus as a living document, thinking mm -hmm. about a syllabus as a collaborative document. Um, and so, yeah, those are some of the ways in which I guess I, I, I started trying to do this in the classroom before um, calling it querying design pedagogy. Um, I love all of these ideas. And I think, um, you know, in, in many ways, these are things that I had been thinking about much like mm -hmm. you as a, as a response to my own undergraduate education and even my graduate mm -hmm. education, honestly, a little yeah. bit um, now that I think about it. Um and something that that I think about a lot 
uh, you've done a very good job of talking about other institutions without ever naming them. <laughs> and and I'm going to try to do that now too. Um, <laughs> I have, I have been in situations either, either as a, a part-time faculty member or as a, a visitor or, you know, in, in different situations where this type of language is talked about a lot, uh, you know, mm -hmm. talking about community, talking about um, amplifying different voices, talking about decolonizing. Mm -hmm. But then when, mm -hmm. when push comes to shove, it sort of falls back on the way things have always been done. And that's because a variety of reasons. It's easier. Everyone can agree on it. Mostly everyone can agree on it. Uh, you can put on your website that, you know, X number of students got jobs. And so, if mm -hmm. you know, if it, it's all about, you know, making sure that students get jobs. Some of this experimental work gets kind of pushed to the side or some of these new ideas get kind of, you know, lesser voices. And I'm curious about your experience there and your thoughts there. Um, when you are interested in these things and value these things, how they don't just become mm -hmm. platitudes, but can actually sort of shift mm -hmm. departments and, and institutions. Yeah. Um, okay. Man, I feel like we could like, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I asked you time. this at the end. No, 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 no. It's fine. Um, well, I think that the important thing is that these ideas become actionable. And mm -hmm. so um, I think it's really important, no matter what discipline you're in, to explain how this can be, how these thoughts can be applied to practice, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that, uh, that is something that's really important. I went to a lecture maybe five or six years ago in the sculpture department where I teach, and I remember uh, it was an, uh, an activist from New York who was speaking and a student raised their hand and said, um, I really, you know, value everything you're talking about, like these Marxist ide ideas and um, Judith Butler, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I want to know why it's important to be reading this when there's actually things that need to happen in the world. And hmm. this activist said, you know, I think I think that's a really good question. And she really started talking about like, you know, these people like there are people that have lived their lives thinking really deeply about things. And we can't we have to we have to see the beauty in that, because I think that in education in general, in the arts and the humanities, like that is not those types of educations are dwindling, right? Like we're seeing mm -hmm. schools mm -hmm. get rid of them. And like, how beautiful is it to to support deep thought? But mm -hmm. also, how can we apply this deep thought to our lives? And I do mm -hmm. think um, like in the classroom, like specifically graphic design, there's this connection to communication. It is communication. It is language. It is practice. So how do you not only like have these big lofty ideas as, as someone said said a few weeks ago but like how, how how do you make it tangible and I think that that's always like the deep question and I I think also a deep reward to to have to have both I don't think it's like either or you know and I think that that's where a lot of design education fails is that they choose one over the other and I believe that they should be happening hand in hand I think that's exactly right that's that was such a great articulation of that um 
I have two more questions. What are you thinking about now? What are you working on? Tell me like where your headspace is, how you're kind of taking some of these ideas and, and moving them forward. What's, uh, what's interesting to you right now? Yeah. Um, well, I'm working on this project uh, with a product designer named Sam Taylor. Uh, I had a, originally like four years ago, I wanted to turn my office into a library and performance space. And like my mm. office is the size of a walk-in closet, so it's not big. And I thought that it would be this place where it was like a library, but like there'd be things happening. And because the space is small, you'd either, you'd either witness it from the hallway or through some sort of like live streaming. And um, then when I was actually going to start making it happening, the pandemic began. And then last, last uh, winter, my office grew black mold. Um, So it wasn't going to happen that way. And so Sam, Sam and I, um, we're talking in like January 2020, and he was really interested in in this project. Um, and so now it, it's a collaborative project. It's called Dream Space, and um, it's sort of inspired by you know if you go to a library and you can sign out a room for an yeah. event or do something in just read. Um, Dream Space is a space on the net, but it's not net art. And it's a place where like artists, writers, designers will be able to sort of um, sign out spaces for events, performances. Um, there will be sort of a, there will be a library, there will be a listening room. Um, and yeah, so it dream space is a framework for other things to happen. And um, there will be sort of IRL pop-up spaces that happen, hopefully like at some residencies or other like smaller um institutions so that it, that is a project that i feel like sam and i started making it a thing january 2021 and i think we just went through another round of design this week uh so that's something i'm really excited about um and then my publishing initiative nico fontana um which is sort of like centered around the querying of of language uh working with like designers and artists who write um, so I'm working on a book with Shawnee Michael and Holloway, who's a friend of mine. Um, I'm going to be working mm. on a book, hopefully with, um, Mel Nguyen as well. So oh, wow. those are some things I'm like excited about. That sounds yeah. great. All of those projects sound amazing. Um, <laughs> and, and it, it connects to my last question, which is the question I used to end all of these. Uh, what are you reading right now? I just started reading the Care, Manif- Care Manifesto by the Care Collective. Mm. Um, and I also have like in my bag, the Mutual Aid book by Dean Spade. Yeah. Those are both yeah. like published by the same place. Um, th- yeah, those are the, those are the two. Um, I just read Slave Play by Jeremy right. O'Harris. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are, those are the things I've, I've been reading. Nicole, this was such a great conversation. I'm glad we finally got to do this. Thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. This episode was recorded on March 9th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.